With less than three weeks to go before the August 7th primary, the main candidates for Missouri's U.S. Senate seat are getting some backup. Attorney General Josh Hawley received a boost this week from Vice President Mike Pence, who swung through the St. Louis area on Thursday to tout President Donald Trump's agenda. He also made sure to jab Hawley's possible general election opponent, U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill. I mean, Claire McCaskill has voted in near lockstep with the far wing of her party. While she claims to be a moderate, she actually votes like Bernie Sanders. McCaskill is receiving help from national Democratic groups who are targeting Holly for not aggressively pursuing a pay-to-play allegation from 2017. That's when Democratic Representative Mark Elbrack of Clay County accused Senate President Pro Tem Ron Richard of refiling a bill at the behest of a key GOP donor. This is one of those things that it's just too convenient to be mere coincidence. On this edition of Politically Speaking, we sort out this week's election updates and take a closer look at two competitive Democratic primaries for Congress. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in our tranquil St. Louis Public (laughs) Radio studios is... Colleague Joe Manis. And today we're going to be talking about two Democratic primaries for Congress in the St. Louis region, which are capturing a lot of attention and a lot of enthusiasm. That's Missouri's first congressional district race and second congressional district race. And in both cases, we're talking about the Democrats mainly today. Yes. But we do want to talk about the news of the week. We didn't do that last week, but... Hot news. uh, There was was some news, I think, to talk about. Joe and I were just at an event in downtown St. Louis with Vice President Mike Pence, one of the people from your home, home state of Indiana. Yes, yes. Pence was in town at the invitation of this... 501c4 called America First Policies. Yes. And it's a it's a it's a politically active group that I think was set up to stump for President Trump's exactly. policies. It was set up the month he was inaugurated in January uh 2017. Because it's a 501c4, we don't know who gives the money. We don't know how it's spent. Now, and technically, uh only 49% can be spent on politics. However, there's no limit if they're talking about policies, and that's mainly what they're focusing on. Uh, this group is focusing on promoting certain policies that the president has espoused, and the key focus of late has been trying to promote the tax cuts, which were approved last year, but are still getting mixed mixed uh, receptions from voters. You have a story on uh, stlpublicradio.org about that. But the, the notable part, and this is kind of the electoral aspect, was Pence, in unsurprising fashion, went after U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill. When the time came to repeal and replace Obamacare, to defund sanctuary cities, even when we empowered Missouri to protect the unborn and defund Planned Parenthood, Claire McCaskill voted no. This comes as a lot of Republican-aligned groups are attacking McCaskill on a variety of topics. Uh, They're pressuring her on uh, Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court. There's an ad that I saw that's jabbing her for, for being wealthy, which which is interesting because I remember the the Democrats 
jabbing Roy Blunt for being wealthy in 2016. So I guess that's just a common thing to do. And it didn't really work back then. It really hasn't worked for McCaskill over the years. I'm intriguing, without getting into the specifics, why you would attack her for being wealthy when when President Trump is wealthy. I mean, and that's been one of his... One of his key uh, things from the get-go was the fact that he was a successful businessman. Now, I'm not getting into the ins and outs, but but one of the attacks today at the Pence event was the fact that she lives in a fancy condo. And I, again, I'm not defending McCaskill, but I'm thinking how many people in this room, you know, or, or who are other Republicans elsewhere live in, quote, fancy condos. I mean, this, the stuff where, where Pence focuses on the policy differences, I think, are fair game because it depends on how the voters uh, side with it. I talked to Chris Howard, who is a uh, Republican committeeman from West County, and one of his points to me was that he, he said events like this are really aimed at revving up the base, especially because they may not be so revved up right now. It's, it's, it's to get him going and get him to remember why they are Republicans, what social issues move them. And Pence brought up the social issues that move them. A couple hours after this event happened on the other side of the state, um, the Democrats basically attacked um, one of the contenders that's running against McCaskill, Attorney General Josh Hawley. And this is an attack that's been on the airwaves from Democratic-aligned groups. They're arguing that Holly didn't do enough to investigate a situation back in 2017 when um, mega donor and businessman David Humphreys gave Senate President Pro Tem Ron Richard $100,000, and then Ron Richard filed a bill to change the Missouri Merchandising Practicing Act that would have benefited Humphreys' company. They are a lot of Democrats argued this was pay to play. They called for investigations. Um, and now McCaskill is using this as a way to whack Holly over the head, saying, you know, Humphreys gave him a lot of money. He's turning a blind eye to this and, and whatnot. I, I, but I wanted to actually use this space to to look into this allegation a little bit more specifically. There's a couple of important contextual points to make about this. Ron Richard filed this basically the exact same bill in 2015 and 2016. The first year he actually filed it, he did not receive any donations from Humphreys. What's interesting here is what really, this is about uh, Senate President Pro Temp, soon outgoing, uh, Ron Richard. It's not really about Josh Hawley, but the Democrats are trying to pivot it by saying that Hawley, who has been the attorney general just since 2017, should be looking at that. In some ways, it's similar to the accusations that they've been making against Hawley regarding various allegations against now former Governor Eric Greitens. Um, I think what they're trying to do is to try to tar Hawley a little bit with some of these controversies that involve other prominent Republicans. Now, I talked to Ron Richard about these allegations in 2017, and I I told him flatly, like, I I thought there were instances he didn't respond very well to this controversy. Like, he snapped at Associated Press reporter Summer Ballantyne in pretty rude fashion. Um, But, you know, I think that he noted that I brought up the fact that he had uh, filed this bill before when a lot of other reporters had left that, that fact out. This is actually a companion of three different clips. I didn't pay too much attention to it until that one fellow in the House 
went a little bit too far and I had something to say to him, which you thought that probably wasn't my best comment. But, you know, I, I don't really care about taking on my integrity, particularly from a freshman in the House that barely knows what day it is or never passed a bill or where the restroom is. There's a group of people in the Capitol that's been wanting to do some tort for a long time. And we thought, I thought, well, if I can, if, if I can file a, the most onerous, onerous bill that I can think and maybe bring the other side to do uh, some negotiation, which has happened. There was never intent other than having a hearing of bringing that to the floor of the Senate because it's controversial. And there's never been, never been a group of people come and say we have a, a, uh, a compromise on that. It's just the merchandising practice. It's just too massive. No one is, so we have never, I got it on the calendar, just as kind of a, a uh, in your face to the, the tort, the lobbies. By the way, what Ron Richard was referring to is at a press conference that I kind of alluded to earlier, he told Mark Ellibrack to kiss his behind in a profane way. Um, I've known Ron Richard for a long time. He's a colorful, colorful personality. And I could tell he was really upset that some House Democrats were questioning his integrity and actually trying to insinuate that he had committed a crime here. He has been adamant that he committed no crime and that the money that Humphreys gave him went to other people. So what do you make of all of this? I know you mentioned before that this is kind of just a way to tar Holly with other controversies, but is this really going to work? Well, it. I think what they're trying to do is set a pattern. And especially since the the controversy involving the former Governor Greitens is now gone, what they're trying to do is trying to say this is a pattern of behavior by Holly not to investigate certain things. Whether or not each individual one he should be investigating or not is kind of beside the point as far as the what the Democrats' point of attack is. Now, I want to make it clear that Republicans often do this the same thing where they take, and they're doing this actually with McCaskill, where they're throwing in some things that may be legitimate questions with stuff that, no. But they're trying to um, say that there's a pattern here. So, I mean, that's what we're seeing without getting too much in the weeds on the specific stuff regarding uh, Richard. And to be fair, at least the donations were reported. And now, because of campaign donation limits, uh, some of those donations, candidates cannot take as large donations in Missouri. And it should be noted that Humphrey's donation came right before Amendment 2, which were the campaign donations, went into effect. And I think he was just trying to donate to a lot of different people, as well as other donors were before the limits came into place. But let's get out of the weeds and get into the campaigns. We're going to get into our first race we're going to spotlight, and that is the first congressional district. It's a race between basically two candidates. There are more two, more than two candidates on the ballot, but there are really only two that we're going to focus on here. The first is Congressman Lacey Clay. He's a Democrat from St. Louis. He's been in Congress since the beginning of 2001. He's been in Missouri state politics since the 1980s. He has never lost an election. His dad, with the exception of him running a writing candidacy for mayor, which we're not counting, has never lost an election to Congress or the Board of Aldermen. And um, he is running for what would be his, a, a term that would mean he would be in Congress for 20 years, because by the time his next term is over, I believe he'll have served 20 years. 
I asked him what he wanted to accomplish in this next term, especially with the possible prospect of the Democrats taking over the U.S. House. Considering my um, uh, my committee assignments, I, my focus will be on uh, how to bring economic opportunities to uh, the federally designated promise zone, and which covers uh, most of North St. Louis City, North St. Louis County. Uh, and I think that's important because for so many years those areas have been deprived economically. They, are, they have been redlined, and uh, from my position on the Financial Services Committee, I will fight insurance companies, uh, urge banks to extend credit to that area, to those families, so that we can help them build wealth. Uh, and I think that I'm in a key uh, position to economically help this community. Clay's main opponent is Cori Bush. She's a resident of Florissant. She actually ran for the U.S. Senate in 2016, lost pretty decisively to Jason Kander. Let's be candid, to, to use the pun, that was a pretty uphill battle, considering Kander was the slated Democratic candidate in this race. But she's garnered a lot of enthusiasm from a lot of activists, from people that, for whatever reason, aren't fans of Lacey Clay. And I kind of asked her a similar question. If she if she won and she was a congressperson where the Democrats have the majority, what she would want to focus on? Initially, when I if I'm elected to Congress, um, I would love to start off tackling our education system. Um, I believe that a great way to help some of the things that are happening here in St. Louis in this particular district um, could all be helped by focusing more on education. Um, Regardless of the zip code, we should have quality education for each and every child. Uh, We should have affordable education from cradle to career. Um, I believe that one way to help um, with with crime and with poverty is to make sure that we have um, that we are being educated. So one of the backdrops of this race is experience versus a fresh face in St. Louis politics. Uh, the Clay family has been around in politics since the 1960s. Is that correct, Joe? Actually, I would say even earlier in the 1950s. Yes, so, as far as either even if they weren't in elective office, as far as being influential. And one of the unspoken things about being a congressperson, it's not really an unspoken thing, but it's something that the public at large probably doesn't quite grasp, is people in the U.S. House that are the most powerful often are the people that have been around the longest because it's a heavily seniority-centric system. And Clay made sure to make that point to me. Well, I think that experience matters because it's about a level of service to this community to the people who who elect you to be their voice in Congress. And it's uh, that level of service is important, and you, you get that only from uh, experience. And, and, for, and for, for the years of service that I have uh, given to this community, uh, I think it's important. And I've... Uh, developed a reputation of being hands-on and being able to deliver uh, for people who who have uh, um, various issues that they're that they encounter with our our government and uh, so I I think experience goes a long way especially in a place like Congress who depend on the seniority system. 
Bush has a different take. Experience doesn't necessarily um, equate to effectiveness. You know, um, it, it, yes, experience sounds wonderful, but if the experience is not actually touching the people that it's supposed to touch, if, you're, if the people on the ground are not feeling represented by that experience, then how is it benefiting them? We need someone who is, who, yes, I may be new walking in the door, but the experience that I have from the street going to sit in that seat, I believe I can move more mountains um, with this fresh new passion and, and just lived experience than someone who's been sitting there. I don't want to overgeneralize and say that these two candidates have no differences on issues. For example, Clay has been a big supporter of the Paul McKee project, and I I didn't ask Cori Bush about this, but I don't think that she is because a lot of her supporters are not. But Joe, you, you were a Washington correspondent for a while. What do you make of the this kind of internal struggle about sending somebody who has a lot of experience so they can be the most effective person they can be in Congress? versus sending somebody new and may have be more in touch with the activists which who who seem to carry a lot of energy in the political process. Well, I think potentially, you know, they're talking about this being a blue wave election. I'm not sure if that's really going to happen for various reasons, but there's also this wave in generation uh where you've got people like Lacey Clay and I feel old because I knew his dad really well, covered him for decades. So uh, Lacey, it was like he still seems like the new person on the block, even though he's been there almost 20 years. My point being is that at some point you have a generational shift. You have a shift in where the um, uh, candidates and the players, they bubble up the new crop. And I think what you're seeing here, and you're seeing this in some other contests as well, effective or not, you're seeing new faces, fresh faces, who are challenging people who have been around for a long time. And you, that's a great segue because one of those people, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, did that in New York, and she's coming this weekend to St. Louis to campaign for Cori Bush. And I, I asked Bush about what it would mean if she was able to win this race especially with that backdrop that I just mentioned and you just mentioned as well, Joe. It will send the message that this is not just, it wasn't just lightning striking, you know, in her race, which, I, you know, people have said. Um, also, it, it will show that women, especially women of color, can win Congress. You know, we're such a small group in Congress. Um, and it will also show that um, actually sticking to the issues Sticking to the issues and not trying to comply with just what you know people want to hear, but actually going for what people need right now, that that's what's going to win. People can be themselves. That That's the key. People can be themselves. Um, and it will show that the Midwest, because it's been said that the Midwest can't do this, it will show that the Midwest can stand up. There's been kind of a, a renegade progressive movement in St. Louis City that has elected people like Megan Green, Bruce Franks, Annie Rice, and people to the Democratic Central Committee who are really pulling for, for Bush and are campaigning energetically. The one thing, though, that I've noticed from looking at election results in the mayor's race and the Prop P race to increase sales taxes for the police is those progressive candidates and causes have not done particularly well in North St. Louis. In the mayor's race, Tashara Jones, who was the progressive candidate du jour, lost most of North St. Louis to Louis Reed and Antonio French. And Prop P, I think, passed in most North City wards, if I'm not mistaken, as well. And I'm not the only person who noticed this. Lacey Clay, 
who has pretty strong ties in North City and to some extent North, North County, made this point. Well, it, it's, it would be a barrier to anyone, especially so-called progressives in this race, because they don't speak uh, to the issues that are important to um, the African-American community. When, when uh, people in that community want to hear, how are you going to make my life better? Such as, are you going to help us get health care coverage for our family? Are you going to provide us with uh, and the protection in the workplace and ensure that we can make a living wage? Progressives in this race never talk to those issues, never talk to that community uh, because they don't have a real connection to it. If you might have noticed there was music in that clip, it's because I caught up with Clay at a Baptist church in, in North St. Louis County. And there were a lot of older African-American parishioners there. It was pretty much all African-American. And when he was introduced, a lot of them just swarmed to Clay and were very happy to see him. And it kind of was indicative of his point that he believes that he speaks the language and speaks to African-American voters better than some of the progressive activists. Now, both of these candidates are African-American, but what do you make of Clay's point? Because I think that there's real enthusiasm behind Bush's campaign, but I also think if you talk to a lot of political people, they acknowledge that Clay's political organization is tough to beat. Well, one of the things, again, as I mentioned, there's, it's, it's generational. Most of the people in that church, I would bet, were 50 or over. And those, and this is true of whites as well, they are the most reliable voters. So if you're a candidate, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you really want to pay attention to what the um, older people in your district uh, care about because they're the ones who are more reliable to vote, especially in a primary. I mean, there have been a lot of polls and a lot of attention to millennials and the younger voters. But one of the problems is that traditionally they haven't turned out. They make a lot of noise, but then they don't turn out. What we will see in August but then again in November is whether or not this year is different. Let's shift a little bit westward to the 2nd Congressional District. Joe, have you figured out whether you live in the 2nd Congressional District or I, not? I'm right, right on the line, literally right on the line. Okay. I think I am by about a block, but I'm not sure. Well, you're obviously very familiar with it. It's, it's currently occupied by Congresswoman Ann Wagner. She won election to that seat in 2012. Um, she has not really faced a race that I would consider super competitive. Now, some people have said, like, there's never been a real candidate for the second district before. And I would. You, you mean Democratic. Democratic candidate. candidate. I would actually strongly disagree with that. State Representative Bill Otto was a real candidate who got no national support in 2016. And he lost. Like, you don't get national support. You're not going to win these races. It's as simple as that. Now, the reason we're talking about this now is the Democratic uh, Congressional Campaign Committee, the DCCC, has become interested in this race. I think they see the fact that it's a, quote, suburban district and therefore think it's winnable. I, I, I'm not completely sold on that narrative, but we'll talk about that later. And there are five Democratic candidates running to run against Wagner. There are really three that I think are the major candidates, Court Van Ostrin, Mark Osmick, and Bill Haas. 
Let's get start with uh, Court Man Ostrin. Joe, what can you tell us about okay. him? Okay, he has gotten most of the endorsements. He's um, uh, young, uh, telegenic, has been spending a lot of time um, talking to various uh, influential people in the district, and he's, I, I guess, in some ways, um, for whatever reason, he's gotten most of the top. Uh, Democratic support, whereas Osmac, who is a little older, he's in his 30s, and is a military veteran, has gotten a significant amount of just people on the street. So there's like two different ways. Both of these guys sort of illustrate two different approaches of trying to get the nomination. One thing, one one key thing I want to say is that Van Ostrin has raised the most money of any of the Democratic candidates and actually goes into the general, I mean, goes into the primary election with uh, over half a million left with a few weeks to go. Here is Van Ostrin on what sets him apart. I think that on the issues, uh, it's true that probably on most issues, um, the the leading candidates in this race are on the same page. But what we really need if we're going to win the second district is someone who is committed to working extremely hard. Um, losing my dad at the age of eight, I helped my mom raise my younger brother and sister. I learned what hard work looked like by watching her example. Um, and I worked extremely hard uh, to get to Harvard on a scholarship as a kid from a small town in Joplin, Missouri. We've worked uh, extremely hard for the last year to put this district into play. I think that our hard work and our willingness to be a champion on progressive issues is why we've been endorsed by NARAL and the Teamsters, uh, by the United Auto Workers, uh, by uh, groups like End Citizens United, which is the premier campaign finance reform group in this country. Our hard work is showing. I think our hard work is what has started to put this district into play. If you look at some of the nonpartisan handicappers, the Cook Political Report, they moved this district closer to the Democratic column because of our campaign. Here's what Osmek had to say about what sets him apart. There are a few things. Um, as I mentioned before, that this is my home. I went to Limerick High School in addition to Fox District before that, uh, Bayless District, uh, St. Louis City District before that. Uh, so that's one thing. So some of the things that we talk about are service, experience, and roots. So for me, this is not, uh, yes, this is my first race, but it's not my first entrance into public service, whether that be in the military or through other means. So the, the service aspect is there. This is just my uh, continuation of that. Uh, the experience is also a difference. Uh, so not only in the military, in the Army, and two deployments to Afghanistan, uh, but also working for two years in Washington, D.C., where I learned policy from two amazing women, uh, and Senator Claire McCaskill, and then now uh, Senator uh, Tammy Duckworth from Illinois. So I worked for her as her defense fellow for one year, and then also worked as a uh, fellow for the House Armed Services Committee staff. So, Joe, I don't think it's an accident that Osmek is emphasizing the fact that he his roots in the second district because Van Ostrin told us he hasn't actually lived in the second district for very long, like well, two or three years, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he, <laughs> but he's a, he's a native Missourian. Uh, he was a student here. And uh, I mean, so it's not like Van Ostrin's a carpetbagger or something. I think the reason that I've been skeptical about whether the second district can be winnable <laughs> for the Democrats, I certainly think it could be com- a competitive district. But the the issue that I have with it being winnable is if you look at how it's drawn, yes, there are de- very Democratic parts of the district that were purposely put in the district, but they're paired with even more Republican parts in western St. Louis County, northern Jefferson County, which has become much more Republican since 2011. And part of St. Charles County. And part of St. Charles County, which Democrats have still not figured out how to break through there. So we we both asked them, like, 
how are you going to win this race given those structural barriers? It's not a knock against either candidate. It's just the the cold, hard reality sometimes is when you're in gerrymandered seats like these congressional districts are, and they are, um, it's sometimes hard to win. This is what Van Ostrin had to say. This is going to be a very different kind of election year, and we see that energy and enthusiasm every day. Um, I think you only have to look as far as what Lauren Arthur did in Kansas City, what Mike Revis did uh, down in Jefferson County, to see that voters are ready for change. They flipped those districts, both of which were uh, at least Mike Revis's district, and I believe Lauren Arthur's, were tougher for a Democrat, and they were able to flip those districts pretty handily. Um, let's talk specifically about the second. As you point out, this was a district that was redistricted uh, back in 2010. Um, and they cut the lines then, and they tried to cut them to favor a Republican. Um, but this is portions of Russ Carnahan's old district, uh, along with a lot of the old second uh, congressional district. This is a district that Claire McCaskill won in 2012. Chris Coster and Jay Nixon also won it that year. Jason Kander lost this district in what we all know was a very bad year for Democrats by less than half a percentage point. So I think that, you know, what we are really up against in this district is the fact that there's been a lot of neglect of the second uh, by my party. Certainly someone like Bill Otto, uh, who ran two years ago, ran a great race, but he just didn't have the resources to really get his message out. I think that because of the energy and the enthusiasm, because of the grassroots support that we have received, we're going to see a very different result this year. And here's what Osmec had to say on that topic. So we do it by knocking on doors. We have already knocked on over 14,000 doors because of our wonderful staff and volunteers. So that's one way. Our message is unapologetically what it is. And this is not about trying to outleft anybody. Uh, this is about doing what is right because it is right. And so I understand that some people aren't ready for it, but this is where we need to go as a nation. Jason Kander fared very, very, very well in this district uh, in 2016. Hillary Clinton did not win, but she outperformed President Barack Obama in 2012. Um, so that says that this district is trending uh, the way that uh, the right way for us. Uh, and furthermore, when we go back and when people say Missouri is a red state, I respectfully disagree. My, I'm 36. My first election was in 2000. This state, I mean this in all respect and reference, this state elected a deceased Mel Carnahan over a live John Ashcroft. And it wasn't 180 years ago. It was 18 years ago. So, Joe, you already heard my analysis and my skepticism. What, what, what's kind of your, your read on this district in November, especially with the possibility of it being a good environment for Democrats? Well, first I want to say I'm very careful about predictions because uh, something and, always happens. But, so am but, I. But that said, Ann Wagner ran no TV ads in her reelection bid in 2016. Her staff doesn't think she ran any in 2014. Ann Wagner began running TV ads this week, which tells you that she is seeing something in her poll numbers, in their internal um, uh, analysis of their district. Now, I'm not saying that, that she finds herself behind or anything, but what I am saying is when You've got an incumbent that all of a sudden is running ads several weeks before the primary that she's expected to coast in. It's because there is some concern that either not enough voters know her or what she stood for or what her accomplishments are. or In fact, her, cam- her campaign said they want to reintroduce her to the district. Well, that's always a kind of a d- dangerous reference. I mean, she's a sharp political player. I've known Ann Wagner for almost 30 years. She used to be head of the state 
Republican Party. She was co-chair of the Republican National Committee for years. And so she gets it. So I'm I'm assuming that she saw something in those numbers that concerned her. And here's one of the reasons is because nationally, and I've heard this from a number of Republicans and in the state, and things may have changed, but I've been hearing for months that they say they are getting killed in the suburbs, that particularly suburban women right now are not very amenable to the Republican message. Now, that could change. But I I think the fact that she's running ads this week tells me that there's something to that, and she's either being preemptive uh, or feels like she's got to do something to kind of set the stage because she doesn't want to see what happened in New York happen to her. I mentioned Bill House on the the outset, and the reason that I would say that he is a major candidate in this race is because from looking at finance reports, he has been running radio ads for months. He has self-funded a lot of his campaign. He is probably more well-known because he's run for a lot of things over the years. But the reason to take him seriously in this race is because he ran for the second district, I think, in 2008 and won the primary over an opponent that spent a lot more money than him. How seriously should Osmak and Van Ostrin take him? Because I think if they just completely ignore Bill Haas and don't run any TV ads, they run the risk of him having more name recognition than both of these candidates and him possibly winning the primary. What do you think? Well, both of them, I've interviewed both of them, and they both say that. I mean, they both acknowledge that they feel like they weren't saying how they were going to get their name out. Uh, so you're assuming maybe TV or radio spots, but who knows. But they do take it seriously that especially in a crowded field that Bill Haas, who has run, as you said, for a number of things, he had gotten elected to the St. Louis School Board, and even though he doesn't live in the district, he could get the nomination. Now, I'm, I think the, the Osmac and Ben Ostrom, for whatever reason, are focusing on promoting themselves, and they're not even going to mention him, like in their ads. But I think, I think he is a threat, and they both say it. So both of these races are ones to watch on August 7th. We'll have longer stories on stlpublicradio.org and on the radio. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. Say goodbye.